Welcome back to Manhunting, in which Waypoint and friends are working through the filmography of Michael Mann and examining his themes of labor and craft, capitalist oppression, and dudes rocking. Today, I'm joined by Alex Navarro, as Dia Lucina warned us that with Johnny Depp being famously litigious, she did not think Vice Legal would appreciate some of the thoughts and observations she might be moved to offer on the actor's life and career since making Public Enemies in 2012. Uh, which I think we can both certainly respect. Uh, but yes, we, we are going to we are going to see this project through, and we will yes. just we will just deal uh, with the toxic movie star in the room uh, as as we must. Uh, so let's talk for a second about what you might assume Public Enemies is, especially based on its marketing and what movie Man actually made. At first, Public Enemies seems like it might be heat. But in the 1930s, uh, Depp, he's is sort of at the height of his post-Pirates of the Caribbean stardom, plays fa- infamous Depression-era bank robber and noted Hoosier John Dillinger. It's very weird that this entire movie takes place uh, within like 20 minutes of where I grew up. Like this every, with the exception of the Florida sequence, this entire movie is like parts of Indiana that are my, my backyard. Uh, Christian Bale also at or near his uh, career Zenith plays Melvin Purvis, a foundational legend of the FBI who is often remembered as the hardened gunman that did the actual crime fighting that established the FBI's reputation as an elite law enforcement agency that J. Edgar Hoover rode into a lifetime of political power and influence influence the story of public enemy seems uh then like it might be the familiar master cop versus master criminal framework that is such a favorite of man's except that's not really what public enemies turns out to be instead in places in places it is like a more kinetic uh the assassination of jesse jesse james by the coward robert ford in which over the course of more than two hours, you watch the noose tighten on Dillinger and the entire class of criminal he represents, while Purvis proves to be a sign of things to come, a morally hollow, dubiously competent careerist who finds himself in the service of a crypto-fascist and leading a unit of goons. Uh, In many ways, this is a bleak movie, uh, and at times also an austere one, and maybe sometimes even hard to see as uh, longtime man collaborator Dante Spinotti uh, enters the digital era with a film whose violent black knights set the tone for the moral chaos and confusion that encompass its characters. Uh, Alex, I think this is one of the man films you said you saw once and had not watched since, so I am curious, what impression you had of the film uh, the first time you saw it, mm-hmm. and then sort of what you found on on revisitation. So I think it actually came out in 2009, and I remember that because I think I saw this movie when I was living in Boston working at Harmonix, and it is my my rec- my recollection is going to the theater, seeing it with some friends, and walking out of the theater remembering almost nothing that I had just watched, and. Watching it again for this, which is this is the first By the way, time I've tried to watch it. It was 2009. I okay. don't know where 2012 came from, but it was uh, that was, whole yeah. like five year block between 08 and 2013 is kind of a black box for me. It's like every they all might as well blend together. But um, I have not seen it in full uh, in the time since then. I've seen little bits and pieces of it, rewatched a couple of scenes here and there when they were on TV. But like this is my first real rewatch. I think this movie is ass, and I I mean that in almost totality. Um, 
there the pitch here of depression era heat guys i think is a compelling one i think putting in the same breath as something like the assassination of jesse james is not an unreasonable thing to do because it is scratching at some of the same ideas but the follow through here on both the pitch and that concept is borderline incompetent in places um and it's not even really the performances, though I don't think any of the actors in this movie are availing themselves particularly well here. Maybe Stephen Lang, Stephen as, Lang. The, as the hard-nosed Texas lawman uh, has a few moments here and there. But by and large, I feel like everyone in this movie is on autopilot, most of all Michael Mann himself. To the point where it feels like at times watching this movie, he is covering his older, better movies with a shittier backing band. And then you throw in the digital photography of this movie, which, while I am generally forgiving of early digital, and this is not even early, early digital. This is like slightly better than early digital because we're, we're a few years past the, you know, the early 2000s uh, implementation of the technology. Parts of this movie are straight up illegible, um, especially anything that takes place in the dark. But like a lot of the action scenes where the camera is jittering around like crazy, it just ghosts every image on the on the screen and everything feels like it is a weird blur, which is fitting in a way for the actual end results of the movie, which feels like a bunch of stuff happened and none of it stuck. So. That's uh, certainly how I like that was my reaction the first time I saw it uh, when I saw it like I was so hype for this movie. I was like, honey, we're going to the theater. It's going to be, you know, you know how I've made you watch heat a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be like that. But uh, this is real with Dillinger. Yeah, it's going to be just incredible. And I watched it in a Cineplex in Wisconsin. I think it's one of the last things we saw before we moved out east. And I remember in particular, like, like nothing was really grabbing me, but it was the shootout in the woods in Wisconsin, the little Bohemia, uh, like gun battle where I was like, I don't know what is happening. This entire thing is a hallucination. Uh, like it is just like gun flashes and then pitch black frame, shaky cam lurching in every direction. Uh, couldn't tell you what's going on. And then, it did feel like man and it still kind of feels this like this man is kind of chasing the story he wants to tell cuz it feels mm-hmm. like midway through he wants to do a different movie than he started out making and yes. it like it is a movie of parts and in some ways it it feels like midway through he alights on a couple different concepts of what the direction the movie could have gone but the sum effect is that there's a bit of thematic incoherence here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the impression that stuck with me for a long time. But here is the thing on uh, like revisiting it this like this past week. I was struck by how much I've turned around on this movie in interesting the years. Um, what is it do you think that most turned around for you? Because I, I, if anything, I feel like I tumbled down further in the opposite direction. So, okay, I'm going to be, we're going to, we're going to enter the trust tree a little bit. Okay. 
Um, as you know, occasionally we use a cool hacked PS2 for various things, uh, you know, that we stream on Waypoint. With this, uh, I acquired a cool copy of Public Enemies uh, mm-hmm. that may have made some adjustments to the Blu-ray transfer. Uh, it is possible because I don't remember it being quite this legible as before. Okay, uh, But part of it is, or, or the other big change is this time I'm watching it on my home theater, which is the OLED TV. Uh, it's, it's a pretty good setup. I was in a perfectly dark room and suddenly things that I thought were entirely legible landed for me completely. Okay. And I was like, oh, Spinotti is back and he's still a genius. It's just I couldn't make out what he was doing before because like the projection was bad. This seems like a recurring issue in the digital era, right? You will you will get mm-hmm. things like famously the Game of Thrones thing where it's like yes. people involved in that shoot swore up and down that like it looks good in screening rooms. It looked like the the battles look great uh you know from what they saw and then in streaming it was destroyed. Uh, and things can go wrong with transfers as well. And so it is possible that, like, this is what what was shot is a movie that, like, really can strike you as visionary in, like, almost lab conditions or a complete mess in the locations that most people are screening films, which for me, like, a a multiplex in Wisconsin was not tuned to show this movie off to best effect. But, like... I was really stunned by how much of this movie, like the the visual style of it that I had hated. I suddenly was like, oh, this is this is terrific. This this is like incredible work. Okay, this might be owed to like us watching different versions. The watch version I watched was just the straight up Blu-ray version that is that is out there now. There is no 4K edition HDR version that I'm aware of at this point. But the thing I kept running into is it's not just legibility that's a problem for me with the look of this movie. Like, yes, there are like the the shootout scene just still does not look great to me in in its current version. And I I think that, you know, again, some of the darking darker scenes like just they blur in a bad way. Mm-hmm. But the bigger issue, I think, for me is that a lot of the scenes that even are in the daylight where they are going heavier on the digital versus like the very clean looking, like I I assume it's all digital, but there are certain scenes that look more handheld than others. And anytime they cut to the more handheld looking cameras and you have these people in these costumes and they're acting ish throughout the film, it straight up feels like true crime TV reenactment shit. Like the look of it feels cheap the care like because nobody is really performing in a way that feels like big hollywood acting it all has this very reenactment feel to it that is just kind of cheap and feels way out of step with how even the most antiseptic michael mann movies up to this point have felt to me like it all feels small and that is not what i want from this big sweeping gangster story that is trying to touch on these cultural elements uh, of, of, you know, what Dillinger meant to America at this time, what was the FBI at this time, it feels like this incredibly small-scale, almost dinner theater-like pro- production of it. So, we'll come back to the gun battles in a second, because uh, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, like, I'll, like, I think part of it is just the scale at which the movie operates, and I mm-hmm. also feel there's, there's other stuff at, at work, but let's talk about 
the first half of the movie here, the first third really sets up a film that you're not going to end up watching, which is kind of an odd thing. Like you, it opens on a prison break. And the other thing I'll mention here is man can be a stickler for historical accuracy, but also this is a wildly fictionalized movie. Uh, Like little weird little details are, are correct. And then massive amounts of things have been rewritten and uh, like sort of changed in terms of where heavily dramatized. Yeah. Like, um, you know, for instance, um, like Babyface Nelson, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't die in the shootout in Little Bohemia. Actually, he dies after Dillinger. He's run to ground in Barrington, Illinois, actually. Uh, so like the entire that entire gun battle, which was pretty much the chaotic nightmare that is shown in the film doesn't have any of the resolution that it has in the film. It doesn't like there, there was no, like the narrative of the, of these gangsters on the run, they didn't catch anybody. Uh, yeah. and so narratively it's, it's fitting to have Nelson, uh, presented as sort of the depression era Wayne grow to Dillinger's, uh, like Collie, but historically that's just not how it works out. No. Um, and I think that's where I, one of the, the bigger issues I have with the screenplay is that it feels like it is trying to jam these real life figures into a format that man is already very familiar with, and it struggles against that. And, you know, in, in the first, in, in the first third there where, you know, we, we open with basically the assembly of the Dillinger gang in this prison break, uh, which you know, turns into, as you might expect, a wild gun battle uh, because, again, there's a hothead in the mix. Mm -hmm. But concurrently with that, we are introduced to Christian Bale's uh, Melvin Purvis, who, okay, uh, what is the name of the song? Uh, Ten Million Slaves? Uh, I believe so, yeah. It was a it was a sort of a weird like uh, like. It was like a weird like. uh power folk uh hit of the of the time man loved it apparently it was just like mm-hmm. this is the movie this is the sound of this movie so we open we get him running to ground uh channing tatum playing pretty boy floyd uh and him running him to ground in sort of an an apple orchard and what is set up there is sort of this you know oppositional figures right you have dillinger on the one hand the 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 fiercely loyal uh, mastermind who gets his buddies out of prison, uh, you know, doing doing this raid. And then you have Bale, who's shown uh, quite pointedly, he is a hunter of men, uh, a man hunter, if you will. Mm. He's He's got an odd little rifle that seems to have like a dual trigger to do a to do a hair trigger release uh, type thing. And odd little detail that man throws in there. Uh, but he just coolly guns down Floyd, um, like like shooting a deer at like 150 yards. And that did not happen, though, in real life, did it? I don't think so. Um, no, I think I think what happened was they were pursuing him, but uh, it was multiple people that shot him. And I'm not even sure that Purvis was one of them. Yeah. And like, uh, you know, the. Not all the characters who were present at the like little Bohemia gun battle were there. Yeah. Either. Like it's 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 constant. Uh, there's like constant sort of uh, like tweaks to the, the the story but the the idea is that this is the guy who's going to be hunting dillinger right this is this is the this is sort of the the cold killer uh that is going to be set on the trail of 
of um John, uh, of John Dillinger and the person that's going to set him on this trail is J Edgar Hoover and we are sort of introduced to him at a congressional hearing where basically he is being grilled by uh congress congressmen who are pointing out that like he's never been a cop he's a bureaucrat and he appears to be in over his head and he is acts he is asking for wild budgets to create the national like law enforcement agency that he dreams of and he has no real credibility uh in this time and so that's kind of the the stage that that man is setting uh where it's going to be this sort of pursuit between these two guys against the backdrop of Hoover's ambitions and it kind of works until i feel like at some point, either in making this or in the script, man decides Purvis is not interesting. And you He's can't right. blame him, but he also, but it's your movie. And I think yeah. part of it is, and I, here's, here's the thing I like about this decision. Purvis in this film is not. Al Pacino's character. He's not Will Graham either. It, like what we discover is that he's kind of a moral coward. And he's a guy who what few principles he appears to have go over the overboard. Uh, the mm-hmm. minute Hoover is like, you know, what we should do is torture. What we should do is, uh, you know, make like we're all little Mussolini's. And at that point. Man, unfortunately, I think kind of loses interest in the character rather than explore this theme further, which is that he's not a super cop. He's a violent like he's a bureaucrat who kills people and he's like violently ambitious, but he's not a hero in the story. No, but it's like once man decides he's not the hero of the story, he doesn't need to be in the story at all. Yeah. And it's so it's like you can go two ways with this character, right? Like you can go the Elliot Ness like untouchables route and make him into the shining hero, the sort of like, you know, the ultimate, you know, Depression era gunfighter lawman type, which Purvis I don't think necessarily fits into, and Bale's performance certainly does not fit into. Like he is, I as much as it pains me to say this, as someone who generally likes Christian Bale's acting, he is no Kevin Costner in this movie. Um, and the other way you can go with, with it is the really in-depth, haunting portrait of a conflicted figure like you do in something like Assassination of Jesse James, where Robert Ford who is sort of the, you know, the, the counter and the foil to uh, to Jesse James in the in toward the end of the film, especially he gets a complete portrait in that film and is given a humanity and a driving force and an understanding that makes centering the story on him and not someone like necessarily Jesse James, who is already a very charismatic figure work. And it goes neither of those directions. It starts out with this idea that maybe Purvis will start to run into some static when he runs up against the kind of folk-like heroism that people are imprinting upon John Dillinger and people of his ilk during this time, and also the conflicts he has with, with, with Hoover. But it completely abandons that stuff, and all you're left with is this really limp, bad Southern accent that occasionally shows up to shoot people. That's it. That's the performance and that's the character. Yeah, and I and I think this is like there's a part of me 
that still finds it. This is going to sound like blatant apologia, but I, I do I do sort of like read it this way in, in some ways. I kind of like how much he sort of shrinks in this movie's estimation in part because, like because here here's one thing I see when I look at this movie now. Um, so I think man is very much like Dillinger is his Jesse James. Mm-hmm. But I think the story he's telling when it comes to the lawmen side of this reminds me a lot of another movie from from this era uh, that also kind of gets overlooked, which is De Niro's uh, The Good Shepherd, where you have Matt Damon playing James Jesus Angleton, who was the head of CIA counterintelligence for years and sort of legendarily became uh, a paranoid, destructive figure within the CIA uh, because mm-hmm. he like counted like, you know, it's not just a trope in espionage fiction. This is also like the spy world. Counterintelligence is a field that draws in weirdos and it involves a lot of like double think and such. And so that movie ends up being a portrait of like the creation of the security state and the kind of people who were behind that, who in this movie that De Niro made are all just incredible creeps that like, like, uh, the Good Shepherd is basically about how America is kind of taken over by vicious, like sociopathic uh, wasps. Mm-hmm. And there's a you know great scene in that he, he brings Joe Pesci out for when, uh, you know, Angleton is dealing with the mob and Pesci talks about how every immigrant immigrant group in America has like some sort of touchstone that they bring with them. Some sort of like cultural centerpiece. And what have you got? And uh, Matt Damon's Angleton says, we have the United States of America. The rest (laughs) of you just live here, which is an incredible uh, moment in that movie. But that was not a popular movie, I think, because it was like it was such an unheroic and grim portrait. Cynical. Yeah. And like you, you come away from that movie like. It's not necessarily that those guys won, but the things they built endured, you know, like Angleton's career may have ended in like kind of disgrace, but the CIA and that legacy is still with us. And I think, yeah, the institution is still there and in, in, in it's, you know, all its glory. And I, I feel I've also read like this movie and uh, the good shepherd as being sort of this, the lost Obama era reckoning, the reckoning that never was uh, where you have this awareness now of how filthy the Bush administration was and mm-hmm. how, like excessive the war and terror became and nobody was ever brought to justice for it. Nobody's ever held accountable for it. And I think one of the things that when I look at this movie, I see that initially we are sort of set up to regard Purvis and Christian Bale as like, this is going to be the master cop or he's our Jack Bauer, etc. And he isn't. Um, no. he's not good at his job. He swaggers around like he's an elite cop, but he is, he is in over his head, uh, when faced with a moral choice about like what kind of man he is going to be to advance his own career. Uh, he looks troubled, but like green lights, uh, like truly vicious assaults on prisoners mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, does, does nothing about it. And at the various points where he is brought, fa- like when he is brought face to face, when he is plunged into these gun battles, uh, he sucks at them. Uh, he's he's 
you know, he leads failed operations right and left. Uh, Stephen Lang's character is like the real like hardened gunman of of the FBI side. And he's he sizes up very quickly that like Purvis is not it. Purvis is a uh, self-dealing careerist. And in some ways, like I find it kind of fitting that he just kind of disappears in this movie because once he has failed to bag Dillinger at Little Bohemia, once he is thrown in completely with uh, sort of the the torture agenda that uh, Hoover is pushing, he's such a diminished figure. There's nothing for him left to do. Uh, yeah, and so like I've always kind of liked the way he the way he sort of shrinks down on this in part because I feel like some of what is going on here is we are conditioned as a exercise in the genre to expect that like and here's our super cop and this is a story of like the elite kick ass like you know detective unit on the on the case and what happens at every turn in this is they are demonstrated just be just be terrible at all of this. And I think something that man is maybe doing in this film is sort of making this argument that these the sort of the mythic figures they tried to become to sort of sell this idea that like the FBI was anything other than a reactionary, uh, like fascist organization. Uh, it's all bullshit. Um, yeah. That the, that the rot was there all the way through. You're right about that aspect, though. I think the problem is that, even while I think the the correct decision is to not portray Purvis as the shining, you know, lawman that he clearly was not, I don't think the movie is good enough about getting that point across to make it feel like it is an, an intentional story choice and not just the screenplay losing sight of what it even wants to do by the time it gets toward its conclusion. Like, the Purvis stuff... Again, part of it is the Bale performance, which I feel like even you can feel the enthusiasm he has for the character, like dipping and ducking at various times uh, throughout the film. And it's not just him portraying a guy who is conflicted. It literally feels like the actor just being uncertain of what the hell he's even supposed to be doing in the scene. But it's just it's all a little too flat and it's all a little too noncommittal in terms of like how it wants to tell that story like. All the the Hoover stuff feels so superfluous in the end, and I can't believe I'm saying that about a Billy Crudup performance as J. Edgar goddamn Hoover. He's just doing an impression in this movie. There is there's no performance. There's no character. It's an it's the voice, and that he is does that it. voice very well. He like does the newsreel do bit. Well. It's like damn. But there's like there's nothing. There's no insight into Hoover or his fascism or his. You know, like anything about him that we haven't learned in a hundred other better movies than this one. And the thing is, if you want Purvis to take this back seat toward the end of the story, you really need to have a compelling counter story going on in the background. The thing that makes the Purvis stuff less important. And it doesn't. The Dillinger story as told in this movie is just bland. Like there is there is no real insight here as far as like what it meant for Dillinger to be this almost folk hero like figure in the context of the era he was in and the crimes he was committing. They give you the 
the nitty gritty business details of why people like him were able to operate the way they were for with impunity for as long as they were and how that all changed when the, you know, the cross state federal crime laws started to come around. But that stuff isn't interesting enough on its own. It needs compelling characters to make you care when everything starts falling apart for them. And look, Whatever you want to fucking say about Johnny Depp at this point as a as a person and as a performer, there are performances of him I will defend and say this is great acting. This is not one of those by any stretch. It's not his worst performance either, but his vision of Dillinger is just a little bit of a salty guy. And maybe that's what Dillinger was, but compared with something like what Brad Pitt does with Jesse James. And again, I I hate to keep coming back to this movie because Jesse James is a much better movie. Yes. But they are trying to operate on similar levels. Jesse, you understand how Jesse James was a charismatic leader of his men and why people looked at his outlaw ways as something other than a blight on society. Like why people would get behind him, why people would treat Robert Ford the way they did after he killed him. There's none of that. Here, his gang is a empty set of dudes who, one of them, who kind of looks like Michael Mann, by the way, he seems to have a somewhat close relationship with. Oh, Jason Clark. Yeah, the Jason Clark character. The rest of them are just guys. And you don't care about them. You don't care about what happens to them when they die. And And the relationship he has with Marion Cotillard, who I will say is doing her absolute best to try to not be French and is... 70% maybe of the way there, their relationship means nothing to anyone by the time that movie wraps up. I felt bad for her character with the ringer they started putting her through, but I felt worse for her than I ever did anyone else in this movie. I did not care about what happened to to John Dillinger by the time it finally got there. Yeah, I, um... Gosh, I, uh... I'm thinking about the the Dillinger stuff for for a bit I think I definitely feel like one thing that is badly lacking is this there's a lot of referral to this broader court of public opinion uh because they show it at the beginning when like he's taking up in that farmhouse and that lady Mr. Take Me With You yeah, Mr. it's a great shot. It's like, man, like he's like, I want to do a, a dust bowl, grapes of wrath, like, yeah, or or he just saw Carnival and was just like out of his mind. And I'm like, hey, that you know, it's it's a good moment, but it's kind of out especially of when the kid nowhere. walks into frame, you're like, oh, you were willing to throw it all away here, okay, yeah, and it's a it's a great moment, but it's like the only nod we have to how he becomes a folk hero, and I'm just not sold on like, but why, like, why is this so compelling to people? Uh, that this figure is out here doing this like what and and I think something maybe it is easier to ask this now with the vantage of just how a lot of us have come to reappraise how police are portrayed but I feel like again there's 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 things this movie like comes up to the right up to the line of examining which is this is a foundational era for the cops and robbers myth right yeah like this is totally like you know, if you think about how people regarded the cops before, like, World War II, effectively, it was not a particularly, like, yes, we still made a lot of movies about cops and, and, and shit, but, like, police were not popular uh, no. for a long time in the United States. And 
somewhere in this, they get valorized and, you know, they turn into the whole like public enemies list becomes a thing where here are people that as a society we need to cut out and our brave, uh, you know, champions of law and order are going to be the, the, the people that do it. But the movie doesn't, you know, it doesn't really examine like, how does the shift take place? Like why did people find what Dillinger was doing? So sympathetic and yeah. so exciting. And, and why? Like, what, what, sorry, go ahead. And yeah, and and why was why did Hoover ha, why was Hoover so hellbent on creating a public image for a new breed of cop? Like why were these important things to, to totally to, to be and, going on in that era? And that's that's the thing, is that like there are individual scenes in this movie where I feel like the the little threads, the ideas there that they are trying to scratch at do get portrayed in an interesting way, but none of the legwork is necessary to get the like to get a point across beyond what you are seeing in that single scene. Like the two I think of most prominently for both those points, the whole press conference scene where uh, 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 Dillinger is in the police station and he's got his arm around the fucking DA and like he's just, you know, rapping with the press like that scene is great and it yep. feels like it wandered in from a totally different movie than the one we have been watching up to that point. And it's got little grace details like the way he signals the end of the press conference and like motions the DA to get get him out of there like yeah. he's a PR agent. And it's just it's terrific the way he like uh that everyone is so starstruck by him that he just like works this room. And, and that's like, the charm that is just yeah. totally missing from the rest of that performance is that I don't feel like Dillinger ever feels that way anywhere else in this movie. And the other the other one is the the Hoover scene where you you see him, you know, yelling at Purvis and then he walks over and does his little uh, video hit with the junior G men. And like there is totally a point being made there about the way they are effectively breeding federal fascists with the junior G men program and like, you know, yep. indoctrinating them into the Hoover well, program. And, and that leads into another like vital scene uh, where you get that great shot of uh, Dillinger in the theater with the, it's he's in one of those old, old time, like movie palaces. Yes. And you hear the, um, the contacts like bang as the lights come up in the theater. And, you know, because that, that little newsreel ends right. with to your left, Look to your to right. Your left. Right. And it's this vision of like the surveillance state that was always being dreamed of by some of these people. And of course, in 2009, this is much more or it should be more resonant because I think one of the things that man is trying to draw out is that from its inception, this apparatus dreamed of turning Americans against each other and like yeah. using them to surveil each other. And by 2009, you know the revelations that have unfolded is like the NSA now does that on a massive scale that the FBI is constantly like starting plots to then like bust them up and yeah. send people to jail. Like it, like that should be coming through. I don't know that it does quite, but it's like, it is possible that like so many of my own politics and things that I care about, I do see like reflected in this movie that it's like getting at things that I'm probably giving it more credit than it deserves. But like that whole sequence with the, with the, the two press conferences, the two relationships to media, and then Dillinger, a hunted man in a society that for the first time is being asked to engage in the sort of manhunting. Yeah. Uh, is, is pretty cool. 
It is. And I, again, I think these individual ideas, if better explored in the movie, are make for a really compelling portrait of like how America and its law enforcement sort of came to become what it was. But the movie is constantly tumbling over itself to either get to the next action scene or try to draw out to the next big plot point. And so you get these little moments like the Junior G-Men, the theater stuff. You know, you could say that that there's a little bit of like with the torture stuff, like you could, especially in 2009, you could say there's a little bit of commentary on like the way the war on terror, you know, like sort of fully embraced the, you know, the the hardline, you know, violent tactics that were being employed there. But then it also can't commit all the way to it. You know, like that dude is beating the shit out of Marion Cotillard at one point. And then they have to have their moment where Purvis comes in. And even if it is a limp thing he's doing, which is to say he's after she's already had the shit beaten out of her, he's just carrying her to the bathroom so she can clean herself up. Like, it's not a heroic thing at all. But it also feels like it's still trying to be like, no, this is actually the bad guy who did this. You know, like this is the really bad guy. These other cops yeah. are all gawking and, you know, gobsmacked that he would go that far. And it's just like, would they do that? Well, and, would they? And I think the weird thing is man keeps finding more compelling characters in the background of this. Like the person who actually stops the beating is Stephen Lang's character. He walks yeah. into the room and like and that character you're sold on well enough that you do believe that he doesn't know the shit is going on and walks into the room and it's just like what the fuck and like he would intervene but Purvis almost like of course he knew this stuff was going on he was encouraging it he just turned his back to the room and the guy being like tortured as he lay dying uh the other character that uh sort of emerges from the background and I'm like I want to know more about her is the secretary who is working with the FBI unit and she is overhearing a lot of what they are saying but there's a moment where she comes up to Purvis and is like, I need to say something like mm-hmm. what they are doing is simply not right. Uh, you cannot treat a, a woman like this. And, you know, for a like you, you're immediately kind of like this is a world that is completely dominated by white men. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to have this perspective sort of introduced of like, here's a woman who just works there as like the the admin for this unit. And she has discovered that her, her secretarial job is basically you're working in like the basement of the like U.S. Uh, you know um, Gestapo. Yeah. Uh, and you you're, you mean it like I'd be taken with more exploration of that, but we we kind of we kind of move on. Um, I do want to talk about so one of the. Things that transforms this movie. We've alluded to Stephen Lang's character a few times. Uh, there is a sequence that I I really quite enjoy, and it's where I be like, I do just like what uh, Spinotti is is doing in this film, and this is where they get a lead on somebody being holed up in uh, like a in a town in a brownstone in Chicago, and. We're doing the misdirection where we've seen Dillinger in a similar space, but it turns out they're not on Dillinger's trail. They're on babyface uh, Nelson's. And they go into this hotel and it's like this this sort of like rainy night. Uh, it's it's dark and it is clear the FBI agent like this is their first uh, mm-hmm. like manhunt in this in, in this way. And they're. It's clear like you have the moment where. Purvis is trying to lay out the game plan and it's clear that they're not entirely confident about what their role is or what they're supposed to do, 
but everyone just sort of like muddles along with it. But then they go into the brownstone and the entire thing is just like, uh, I don't think it comes through in that scene is like, <laughs> like electric lighting of that era is so weak and there's yes. so little of it. Like the weird colors of like the entire place feels like this poisoned, like miasma that they're stepping into. And it's all, uh, this like warren of uh, like like hallways and stairwells and just it has the sense of it's it's a horror movie moment. They are stepping into the the killer's house and they are completely unprepared for what they will find there. And Purvis, you know, has that moment where he susses out that you know uh, Nelson and his wife sort of give him a song and dance, and he pretends to buy it, and then he leaves the guy posted to. Uh, while he goes and and sets the rest of the trap and the raid goes horribly wrong. This guy doesn't stay put. He starts, he gets antsy and starts trying to figure out what's going on. He doesn't see the threat coming. He just gets killed, uh, gunned down in the hallway. And then we have the gun battle, but I, I did enjoy like that scene. For instance, there are various modes where I think like Spinotti's trying to be like very cold and antiseptic and documentarian and here he is in full like i mean he's trying to conjure the sense of like terror and out of depthness that like basically these ambitious college kids would have brought to like you know here you are this new newfangled law enforcement agency and you're going to take on some of those hardened killers of the depression good luck and i and i think that comes across like I, that 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 sequence really worked for me the way it all falls apart uh like work for me and I do like what it sets up which is uh although it is Bale's probably worst moment in this film where he tries to explain to whoever he needs our our kind will not he's he, like that feels like the accent is oh, out of yeah. control he I, he's he's lost in that scene I like Bale and I think he does an okay American accent he does not do a good southern accent well, and like Hoover can't understand him over the phone. And so you yes. have this weird, like he sounds weird. And then Hoover's drawing attention to how weird he sounds. Like, I don't know. What the, I don't know what you're saying. I, I took that more to be that Hoover was trying to get him off the phone and saying, I can't understand you as in to say, like, I don't want to hear this anymore. Stop telling it yes. to me. But then Bale wouldn't drop it. And the, I think I, I kind of agree with you about the Nelson scene and sort of the way that thing falls apart. The problem is that keeps happening in the movie over and over again. Like he literally there is almost a I mean, it's in a different location, but it is almost a beat for beat similar same reaction when that guy gets gunned down in the 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 lodge shootout. Uh, I assume I, I think it's by Dillinger uh, like. It's he runs up to his colleague the exact same way and borderline says, I think almost the same line to him, like, who did it? Who got you? You know, something along those yeah. lines. And it just feels like the movie is repeating itself in places where it could have focused on other things that might have made this story thread together a lot better. Well, and so the the takeaway from it is that Purvis decides I need basically he needs like cowboys. Yes. You know, he, he needs guys from like he the needs front. Don Fry, the MMA fighter. Okay. He's one of uh, Stephen Lang's guys. He's the guy with the big fucking severe mustache. Oh, and then one of the other dudes was a um, 
a character actor I know for a bunch of things, but he has no yeah. lines in it. He's just completely like, I was like, I oh, know yeah. that guy. You, nothing. You, he says nothing. You don't want Don Fry talking, so that was probably the right yeah. move on that front. He mostly is just there to be an extremely hard face that holds a gun. But that also means that there is a non-zero chance that uh, Michael Mann is a pride guy. He has seen pride, you know, shoot fighting. He may have seen Fry versus Takayama at some point. Uh, But, you know, like what... Purvis's solution to this is again, I wish the movie brought this out more. Like we we it's weird. Like the reason I know why this is significant is because I do know how much Hoover fetishized college education. Yes. And like being of good family. Being, the waspiness of everything. Yeah. And the movie doesn't bring across why that is like, yes, his his accent does a lot to explain why. A guy who sounds like this is, of course, going to be obsessed with like the various status symbols that show you're the mm-hmm. right type of man, but it doesn't get across this notion that like the thing that Hoover doesn't want is like the fucking flat foot being the image of like his new police force. You know, yeah. he doesn't want, he doesn't want a police force, uh, you know, filled to the rafters with first and second generation immigrants. Uh, he wants people with degrees uh, with like, you know, from prestigious universities, uh, Purvis was one himself, but we don't know why. And and part of it is just that he like. This is both how Hoover saw the world and who should run it. And then also it was like necessary to create this myth around. Well, why is the FBI different from other law enforcement organizations? We're smarter and we're better. We're we're upper class. Um, And what Purvis is getting at here is that. That ain't going to cut it. What we need are the the last dudes who remember what the frontier was like before it closed. We need those guys to mm-hmm. to show up. We need that we need the guys who are like, you know, trailing guys into the back country. And so he gets a bunch of like hard men from the west and I think again, it would have been really interesting if that were explored in more detail, but instead Stephen Lang's great. I like Stephen Lang a lot. Yeah. And I think what he does here because he's so good at it. He's the only actor in this movie that feels like he's fully dialed into what he's supposed to be doing. But also, it's like, because him just being that dialed in and just showing up and knowing exactly what he's about, he is like, I've been obsessed with, like, we've been doing painting for a while, but he's like this really, like, effective contrasting color mm-hmm. that because he's such a strong contrast, it almost feels like man doesn't feel the need to flesh out what this tension is between like the two groups of law, like the two models of, of law enforcement. That's he just thing. doesn't go there. There might as well be no tension whatsoever. Like if there, if that was the intention was to get this contrast between, you know, the, the, the Ivy league law enforcement and the Texas law man thing, the movie all but abandons that almost from the moment they show up because the entire movie, it feels like those guys are in lockstep with whatever Purvis wants to do. The closest you get to a counter thought from Lang's character is that it's toward the end when the they're talking about, you know, like what theater is he going to go to? And he's just like that. He ain't going to no Shirley Temple movie. And it's like, yes, you're right. And in any movie where it felt like your character was actually at odds with what was going on here, that might have been a good pointed bit of dialogue. But throughout the entirety of every police operation that they are involved in. No. It 
Little Bohemia, he says this this is like we shouldn't do this. This is gonna be a disaster. Like he is He like, does, but he goes all in once they start going. Like, and there's never a point where he pulls Purvis aside and said, I told you what was gonna happen here. Yeah. And by the next scene, like when they're out of that gunfight, it just feels like they're right back on the path again. There so you know, in maybe in part because of uh just the it being a period piece, but in a weird way. You know Band of Brothers, right? The yeah. you, you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Uh, you remember the the Foy episode where they got the new company commander who's like the empty shirt. Um, yes, he's just yeah. In a weird way, like what this what Stephen Lang's character has stepped into is that situation where like you were called into this. Effectively, it's like you know what we're in, in a lot of ways. This could almost be a war movie. He's called into this like war with the Dillinger gang, and the officer leading them is a fraud right that like purvis is way out of his depth and we see that you know that is you know certainly the shootout in little bohemia uh certainly like makes that clear but yeah we don't get the the payoff for that which is the character we're introduced to and the way stephen lang sort of plays him the in the the interesting uh conflict there in part is that he like he is realizing that this like this guy ain't all he's cracked up to be that he is he is being pulled into a unit that's dysfunctional yeah uh but yeah he, that doesn't emerge as any kind of uh real tension i think maybe the only way it really pays off is that by the end he seems pretty done with the purvis gang and is like Assign gives himself his own assignments during the 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 final like trap for Dillinger and is the one who sort of brings the movie to a close. He's given the last scene with uh with Billy. Um the the other the other thing that's unfolding in sort of this first half of the film is yeah, we we get a lot of information about and I do like this stuff about like at the start when Dillinger's stock is high. He can, he goes to, uh, I swear, it's like, he's in East Chicago, actually, Chicago, Indiana. The local sheriff is guaranteeing his safety. Yes. And he is also, he's also got a custom car guy who's hooking him up with, like, the the cars he'll need to escape. And, like, he has all these resources. There's There's a brothel he can just crash in whenever he's in town. There's an entire, like, logistical, like, infrastructure supporting him. And that is enabling him to go on this crime spree. And then over the course of this film, what we're going to see is that stuff gets chopped away because what is really underwriting that is the fact that these are all like mobbed up towns. They are all uh, sort of outlying duchies of the outfit in Chicago. Yeah. And the minute that the outfit realizes that, the type of crime that Dillinger represents is small scale. Like in a weird way that like Dillinger and his gang are a bit like the hunters and trappers of last of the Mohicans, right? Mm -hmm. Like they are being pushed out because civilization or or as it is understood by dominant culture is like on its way and their room to operate is going to get narrower and narrower. And so you know, we get from at the start of the film, you have, uh, you know, God, what, what's his name? Uh, DeAndre. Um, he played the dude from Miami Vice, you know, 
Uh, oh, yeah. John Ortiz. John Ortiz's character goes from, you know, hey, whatever you need, you know, let us know if there's any way we can help you to when Dillinger breaks out of the jail at Crown Point and is back on the run. He explains that, like, the Chicago outfit is cutting Dillinger off. And we have this scene that I, I, I love this scene where he tries to explain the difference between like uh, a decent payday and like being a capitalist in some ways, yes. right? Where Dillinger's trying to explain why he's being cut off. And he goes to the central bookmaking operation that DeAndre oversees. And DeAndre explains to him, he gives the speech, it's the, the river of money uh, speech. Mm-hmm. And we might drop that into the episode here what do you make seven thousand dollars or seventy thousand dollars a job we make that in a day here yeah and uh you know unlike unless the police come through that door and dillinger sort of completes the thought which you pay them not to do right unless you're here and then they gotta come through that door and from that point like dillinger is on his own like he is like now he is truly an outlaw because he has no he has none of that infrastructure to rely on uh, anymore. And so the, the various ways we see his breed of criminal being hunted by an increasingly like superpowered law enforcement apparatus and then sold out by a form of criminality that is industrializing effectively and sees no value anymore in the kind of bespoke uh, like craft scale of uh robbery that um the Dillinger's engaging in. And I think that's the thing the movie is trying to draw the parallels with. Like you know, in much the way the federal government was industrializing law enforcement, you know, the criminal organizations were also working in a similar way. The problem is that like the 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 two parallel lines don't actually line up parallel. Like I d- I think that there is like a little bit of a eulogy here being said for a certain certain kind of crime. But there isn't really that much gesturing toward what old world law enforcement was other than the bringing in of the Stephen Lang character and his team. I don't think that a movie has enough juice to really portray much of that stuff in a way that feels like it actually belongs in that kind of storytelling. I get a little bit of the, you know, the kind of the old old type of crime is just no longer, you know, it's it's no longer viable. And the movie does do an okay job at illustrating the ways that which both these characters compromise themselves to try and survive in a world that is changing around them. But it doesn't hit. Like, it's just not hitting in a way that feels like it has any real poetry or any real art to it. It is a very artless way of delivering that kind of message. And I think that is the thing that is like the most striking to me about this movie is that it all feels deeply artless in the way that it wants to tell its story. Yeah. I I don't know. I think um, I find a lot of the scenes effective, but I I do see your point. Like the film tries to like join those two ideas toward the end where Frank Nitti's on the phone with, I think John Ortiz. Yeah. And he says like, don't you understand that the like powers the FBI has granted itself are going to be used against us. Don't you see yes. what what this means? Which is kind of true, except they didn't make a damn bit of difference, right? It wasn't until Rico laws much much later that the FBI, which you know, they may have been necessary for busting up the the mafia, but also turned like 
they are kind of guilt by association laws. Yes. Uh, in, in a lot like the RICO laws are not a comfortable tool of law enforcement, uh, like by any stretch of the imagination. But that's what really did it. It wasn't like cross jurisdictional, like uh, crime fighting ability. It was that's not what stopped the mob. The mob like flourished for like 20, 30 more years. It was other laws that, that sort of uh, disrupted its operations. Uh, the other thing that's kind of missing in that story is, and I think we actually see men bringing that maybe a little more effectively when we think about like crime story, for instance, which has obviously got a much larger canvas to work with in some ways. But when uh, Phil DeAndrea like is describing the centralization of the bookmaking operations, what gets obscured in there is the sheer amount of violence that that takes pl- that that sort of is part and parcel of that right like well especially in consolidating all those right. different bookmakers into the one bookmaker right like in like the 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 thing that's missing from this is that the equivalent to dillinger for like bookmaking was like the big time like local bookie you know running run, running a sports book out of a bar or something like that and those guys either like get brought in or they get shut down violently uh if they if they don't go along with it if they don't sort of like bend the knee to to the outfit and we do get we do get that covered in like crime story when we see that you know um oh who, who's the main crook Dennis that, the, uh no not the cop the uh oh the bad guy uh, yeah yeah i uh, <sighs> yeah yeah, but his whole like his you know big idea is what if we just took over all crime in the city and forced everyone right. to pay a surcharge for every bit of like fencing that they do uh, in, in town, and that's kind of what the mob has done in this period. But it's, the thought isn't connected, like no. the the line isn't drawn between that sort of like merciless merciless industrialization. And the forces that like both have made Dillinger a folk hero and have sort of pushed him to the margins of uh, the world of crime. Yeah, in, in a weird way, it feels like the movie has too many ideas it wants to hit on and it never finds a way to effectively focus on any of them. Like it's too many threads that could all come together into a really gripping crime story. But even within the two hours of this movie, which felt a lot longer to me, honestly, like it it feels like they are hopping, skipping, and jumping around a lot of the actual material that would make this stuff feel meaty and land in a way that actually resonated beyond, you know, the moment it happens. And, yeah, I don't know. Like, I just, I find myself, the more I go back over it and the more I I sort of pour over, you know, the way the screenplay especially is constructed, I just think it's missing so many marks every time. And, and, like you said, individual scenes sometimes are good and sometimes gesture toward what feels like the bigger points the movie wants to make, but none of it connects. And that is where I think it ultimately really fails. Yeah, and I think that it kind of extends to one of the other big plot points that's unfolding here is the romance with Billy, uh, between Dillinger and Billy. And... I think part of, there's this there's this little there's this era of a few years where it's like everyone just decides we're going to cast the same actor for a, for a role and Marion uh, Cotillard was uh that was that character uh, yes. for for a, for a minute there. And there's times it 
works really well. I think, you know, in some ways, cause there's, there's so little happening, uh, character wise in inception that the fact that she is sort of this, uh, banshee in the dreamscape of the film, mm-hmm. uh, like works really, really well. But, but here, um, in some ways it does kind of feel like, this movie was cast by throwing big names in a, in a blender yes. and assigning them different roles. And that's, and what's funny is you could make the same critique of heat, but heat has a stable of character actors and they're all sort of given like distinctive personalities or they find distinctive personalities that make the entire thing breathe. Like, you know, again, uh, re- rest in peace, despite like all the, the conflicted, weirdness or i actually didn't die did he tom sizemore's in the hospital right yeah he's in the hospital i don't know if i don't think he sounds bad yeah um but for all the uh issues around tom sizemore over the years uh he he was at the top of his game an incredibly riveting character actor oh yes and and so like that character on the page and heat doesn't really do shit like really like he's got one good line the action is the juice beyond that there's really nothing that character does you don't forget that character no uh it just it just works and for some reason it doesn't work here despite all the star power the sheer wattage being thrown at this film well so that's the thing is that and it's not helped by the fact that this movie on multiple occasions literally calls back to heat there is the part in the bank robbery where he sees the guy put his money on the table is like I'm not here for your money. I'm here for the bank's money. You know, like they're they stop just short of having John Dillinger say, for me, the action is the juice, at least a few times in this movie. Like there are scenes and lines of dialogue that feel like he is straight up covering heat with different characters. But the pro like and the thing you illustrated here, I think, is the thing that ultimately sinks it. Every actor in heat. All the way down, even the worst performance in heat feels like there is a nugget of a character there that is memorable. Like, yes, John Voight is just straight up doing Eddie Bunker, but his Eddie Bunker is really fucking good. Danny Trejo doesn't even have a character name. They just gave him his real name. And I still remember the scene of Danny Trejo whisper dying in that house more than I remember anything in this movie. And... The actors, while, you know, a, a murderer's row of big names here, no one in this movie feels like they have found the one thing, be it a line of dialogue, be it a character trait, be it something that makes those characters pop beyond whatever they're doing in that scene in that moment. It's just none of it's there. Steven Dorff, an actor I enjoy quite a bit usually turns in something memorable, even when he's not in something great. I legitimately forgot he was in this movie twice before his character finally died, because he has no interesting lines, his character personality doesn't exist beyond him apparently having slightly rotten teeth. Like, there is just nothing there for him to sink his teeth to or work with. None of the gang members. John Dillinger himself is nothing more than a occasionally charming but mostly kind of gruff presence. And the cops are even worse. Like, there isn't... I mean, we talked about who Purvis is, and I understand that some of that probably is 
the fraudulence of who that person was. But the performance gives you nothing to work with. It is not that you feel, you don't even feel pity for him at any point. You just kind of feel bored every time Purvis is on screen. And again, I think the only actor who gets anywhere near that stuff is Lang. And Lang still feels like he is doing a riff on things he has done better in other movies. Yeah, very, very much so. Like, uh, man, it's, it's, it's strange the arc that Lang has had given the, um, the callow shit heel character he plays in uh, Manhunter. Yeah. And then the fact that he becomes Hollywood's go to guy for do you want the scariest old man? Yes. Uh, just the hardest motherfucker you can imagine to like come out of nowhere in this thing and just like Avatar. Uh, you know, he's the like, right. He's the head of the, like the Marine contingent in that. Uh, yes. If memory serves. Um, and there's those horror movies that yeah. he's like the, the crazy old man. in. there's the, uh, what is it? The, I can't remember what those movies are called. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's very weird that like, this is who he's turned into, but he, he, he is very effortless for him. VFW. Like he's doing a riff on that there too. Um, <laughs> And by contrast, I think this is the uh, the idea that I think in some ways man wants to explore what doesn't get explored very much in heat, which yeah. is here you've got a woman who has a very small life and a very con- a very constrained set of options. And the difference is, you know, in, in heat, obviously this, this woman's kind of duped into like, she just doesn't know what he does until it's too late. Yeah. Uh, in this, this woman who sort of at no point does he lie. He's very open from the first. I'm John Dillinger and I rob banks. This is his, this is his identity. And she knows, or she at least firmly believes this is going to end terribly. That this guy is not, and escape to anything. He's not going like, uh, you know, we, we get some of the tension in their relationship when they're down in Florida where she's like, let's not pretend I'm not going to end up right back at the coat check uh, yeah. desk. And it's kind of a compelling idea for, you know, she knows this is doomed, but she ends up kind of buying into the, the myth anyway, the, the dream anyway. But I guess in general, it just feels too much like, it's a little too rote. There's nothing it's super like, rote. very natural in their relationship. And they don't have any chemistry together. Like, I don't think Marion Tilliard, accent work aside, I don't think she's particularly bad in this movie. I think she she is trying to wring something out of this character. There isn't a lot there, and I don't think she gets all the way there. But I, I will give her an A for effort, if nothing else. The problem is that her romance with Depp makes no sense, because these two people do not coalesce. Like there is no chemistry that makes their romance feel like something, you know, exciting or thrilling for either of them. Like out of sight, this shit ain't, you know, like this, there is none of the eroticism. There is none of the, the, you know, the danger. Like all you do is kind of feel bad for her at the end, even though, you know, she walked straight into this miserable fate that she kind of ends up in. But that's it. And it's like, I don't feel bad for Dillinger when she gets popped. I don't feel bad for her when she finds out he died. Like, it just, it feels like two people who never really should have gotten together in the first place. And whoops, 
I guess that's what happened. You know, the worst case scenario did in fact happen. And the actors just don't, they don't work well together. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it does. And I think part of it is, as you said, like there is, there's a bit of a choice here where Dillinger can turn on charm in this film. Like again, when he's working the press. Yeah. But the way he is portrayed, the way man and Depp appear to have like converged on this character is that he is a really dour uh, figure in, in a lot of ways that like he robs banks, but it doesn't even like bring him a lot of evident joy. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just a, a job he is good at and he is going to do it until he gets his big score and then he's going to get out maybe. But, uh, although even that is like a speculative heist that he's working on toward the end of the film, but there's no real sense of like this guy ever having an exit strategy, uh, yeah. for this, like he alludes to having an exit strategy, but I think maybe the, the more accurate, like the, the more honest moment from him is when he, in that scene in Florida where she makes, where she says like, inevitably this is going to end. He's going to get caught and killed. He makes the argument that actually, no, I'll just be better every time that they, you know, that, you know, they have to guard every bank. They have to be everywhere all at once. And I don't that we can always choose where and when we strike. Uh, and so he is fully like, he is fully given over to hubris in mm -hmm. this film. But yeah, the relationship never, it doesn't really resonate, though it does, I think, have one moment later in the film when they're on the run. They have that, lat, like, she finally breaks free of her FBI, like, tail. Mm -hmm. And they're reunited for one night, and they end up on a beach. I swear, I think it's like in the Indiana Dunes. Uh, but they're alone there on the beach. It's cold as hell. And they're in this, like, small pool of light. And talking about like you know daydreaming about their future and it is such a bleak scene juxtaposed against like their happiness at their reunion uh that again i like the scene kind of works for me because like they're so evidently doomed the darkness is all encompassing around them and even this little bit of sanctuary they have is just this like harsh little spotlight Mm -hmm. uh on this in this cold night uh which which i kind of i kind of like um so to revisit the uh the shootout in little bohemia mm -hmm. so i think for me uh like the 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 choice that man and spinotti make here is as we know from various things man has said and various commentary tracks, like he's always wanted to like, I want to shoot night like night, you know? And it seems like uh Spinozzi was brought along for this as well. We're like, how, how dark can we make a movie? How, how like all like, how can we create a shootout that takes place at night? That doesn't look at all like, we're doing day for night shooting. Like it's going to be dark and the, like the gunshots are going to be blindingly bright. And that juxtaposition is going to be where this film lives. And I feel like the entire shootout is designed to be violent, disorienting and incomprehensible. 
in way, but I like for me, I think where I've ended up now on this viewing is I think it succeeds at those things in a way that is really compelling and interesting to me. Uh, but it is like right on the verge because the first time I saw it, scene didn't scan at all. Yeah. This time now, suddenly I feel like, oh no, they, they largely pulled off this vision, but the vision is not of a big, cool action set piece. It is of a series of like desperate misadventures uh, by heavily armed men uh, in, in the woods. I, I, I see what you mean. And I, I do agree that like, I, and here's the thing. I'm not looking for a cool shootout from what is supposed to be a clusterfuck. Like I totally get that. And I think that they do to a point, get across the notion that like, not only are the cops like acting like complete fucking idiots here, but like, you know, the criminals are just doing every desperate thing they can to get away or, you know, to, to at least avoid getting shot. And it's not the chaos inherently that I'm against in this shot, because I think that, you know, historically, that is what this shootout was. It was a disaster. It was, you know, it did not go well for anyone involved. It's just that they are hindering themselves by... Because, okay, like, go back to the shootout in Heat, which mm -hmm. is also a thing gone deeply wrong. That is a shootout where guys that were expecting to get out clean are suddenly now using automatic rifles to gun down anyone who gets in within, you know, hooves into field of view of them while they are trying to make a truly desperate escape. And they cut around a lot in that shot. There is a chaos element to it where... You don't necessarily know which cop cars are getting riddled with bullets at any given moment. You don't necessarily know who is getting shot and whether it's fatal or not. But there is a legibility to how that scene plays out where you are gripped by it. You are held hostage, essentially, until it finally ends and the last gunshot rings out. And you feel like you've been put through the ringer. And you're there on the ground, like probably, you know, hugging the sidewalk, just like sweating and uncomfortable. This is just incoherent, this scene. This is none of that. There is no excitement. There is no grip, ability to grip the audience into what is actually taking place. Part of it is the digital photography. Part of it is the editing. But also the choreography of what is actually taking place in this scene feels disjointed and not in a way that is intentional. It feels like they are cutting around a lot of stuff and like they're, I think what they are trying to say is that this thing sparks off when some unrelated guys get into a car and don't yes. respond to Purvis saying, stop the car. And he ends up shooting the car. The thing is the movie does a terrible job of communicating the fact that they got the wrong guys they eventually get to that backseat shot of the guy in the back of the car and be like asking for help or whatever. But it's a, it's in the middle of all this chaos and it just didn't read for me the first time at all. And this time only after I rewound it a couple of times, I was like, Oh, that's what happened. It. Yeah. I, so I, I will say like, it scanned for me this time because I realized we had that moment of they reconnoiter the lodge a bit. And they yeah. peer into the the dining room and they see those guys being like, well, we got to go to work. You know, you guys have a good night. And it is not immediately clear 
that they are not members of the gang or members of like the broader criminal fraternity that tends to give these guys a shelter. And that like, is a little bit of a problem just by virtue of the fact that every guy in this era dressed in the exact same suit and coat. Yeah, they uh and I like to me I was like when when they when they opened fire in that car, I was like I don't think those I don't think those guys were gangsters. Yeah. But I did have to look up on Wikipedia whether or not they were gangsters, right? I was like, yes. so those guys were totally unrelated. And like famously, this is what happened, right? Yeah, they yes. they they ventilated three people who just happened to be there. Uh and like then completely botched the rest of the raid. Uh but yes, like the movie doesn't spell that out. I think part of it is the geography, the layout of the lodge itself, I think, poses some real problems that man doesn't overcome, which is that it's a sprawling, like, resort lodge mm-hmm. uh, in the woods. It has, like, three faces that are big enough to be, like, the main facade of a normal building. And on the one hand, it makes it a bit more dramatic in that it feels like what the FBI has wandered into here is, like, an assault on a fortress. Uh, because, you know... As they are approaching this place, they're getting fired at from seemingly every angle uh, as as the uh, gangsters inside return fire. But it does mean that when it is when it is time, for instance. For again, like everyone gets away, at least initially. You don't have a strong sense of where the cordon is, you know, I mean, you just don't have a great sense of like, how are they getting out where and why aren't they getting out together? Like, how are. Uh, Nelson and Dillinger separated in in all of this. Um, yeah, and like there's the part where at one point I think it actually is Dillinger gets out, and then you see them calling to each other. It's like someone just got out. Someone just got out, and it's like who is it? I think it's Dillinger, but it is Dillinger. But in the scene when you were watching it happen, it doesn't read like that's Dillinger. I like it, and it's. It just feels confusing because I felt like I lost track of where these characters were and who escaped with whom because Jason Clark's character is also there at one point, And I never I don't remember seeing him actually leave the lodge at any point. And this feels like it's mostly a failure of editing. Like I, I you don't have to show every single thing to get from beat to beat to beat. But because of the way this is put together it feels like they're just dropping you into different areas where some guys got away, but you're not really sure how or who's shooting who or how this cop got to this place and who chased after who. But I think but for me, I think part of it is like what works for me a bit in all of this is I think in some ways like so the he battle portrays chaos really, really well. But also, I think one of the reasons it's such a cool scene is that, like, it's so well choreographed. You got Val Kilmer looking like a fucking god with that M16 just like blazing away. And, like, there's a reason we see that and we're like, that'd be fun to do in a video game. Mm -hmm. And, like, I think one thing that kind of works for me here is that everybody is out of their depth from the, the shooting starts. Like, nobody can see anything. Nobody knows what's happening. And kind of in some ways... Neither do we, which does pose problems for some of this like continuity and understanding you're talking about. But I think what it also draws out a little bit is that once again, like we are not in a realm of like Superman. We are not in a realm of like anyone is some sort of like genius mastermind in this. Yeah. It is 
people running around heavily armed with like really shaky grasp on what is happening. And I think it extends to like, you know, the, uh, you know, man's always got terrific soundscapes here. I think one thing that is really striking is he is playing around a lot in the sequence with uh, just the way gunshots, gunshots sound different from a distance. Uh, there's mm-hmm. places that it sounds like there's a different gun battle happening somewhere yonder uh, as like one, one side of it waxes and, and wanes. Uh, and it just, it, it gives this overall sense of, in a lot of movies, these sequences happen, and in some ways, they're a little bit empowering, right? Because you can imagine yourselves like, you know, I'm here with, alongside Val Kilmer. He's just rocking the whole LAP, L- L- LAPD. Mm-hmm. And here, what we kind of get is a bunch of people deeply confused about what is happening uh, from beginning to end in a way that I think is a bit is a bit like subversive of its genre, I think. And whether that lands for you or not, I, this is like what I've, what I end up sort of taking away from it. Certainly is that like, this is the anti heat. Yeah. And in this sequence, I started to like really feel that like men and Spinozzi are doing this intentionally. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I do think the confusion is intentional, but I just don't think they execute it well. Like I think, there is a way to do that confusion that makes doesn't keep the audience feeling like they have no sense of what is actually taking place because it's not just that like it's a frantic gun battle and these guys are overmatched and they don't really know what they're doing it's that like from a very basic visibility legibility editing sound mixing everything perspective it's all just very muddled in a way that's not interesting like i don't think it's actually even if you take the excitement element out of it i don't think they're making an interesting statement on what this shootout was by doing it this way i think in the end what they are actually doing is kind of kneecapping themselves and creating a scene that should be like a big if not the climax but a big climactic point for your story that feels like it is just muddling along until it's over and that is not what this scene should be. No, and so the scene unfolds with um, Dillinger and Jason Clark's character sort of making an escape, and Jason Clark gets hit, uh, and you know later, you know, dies as Dillinger's trying to save him, and he he comes as close again. Like it's a good scene. I'm not sure it's the Clark movie is they good. Were making. I will say like, I, the character good. is nothing. They give him no traits. They give him no personality. But Clark is captivating enough of as an actor that like I kind of bought the moments between him and Dillinger where they're having their kind of last conversation. Did you ever see uh, Chicago Code? No. Uh, like very short lived. Like this is probably like as close as he comes to uh, like having a true star turn. Um, but it is, let's see here. Uh, that was him, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this was a short lived 2011 series Mm -hmm. where he is, uh, sort of the rogue cop at the center of this, but it ends up it's, it's like, it was a network TV series, but one of the more interesting ones where it has this like odd, sociological bent to it and like he does a very good job as sort of an old school cop 
who is sort of reckoning with uh, the various ways that like the world is changing around him. And like, it should be, it should be a really like boilerplate role uh, that he ends up making into, you know, I'm not saying he's uh, Dennis Franz playing Andy Sipkowitz, but right. If that series had gone on, maybe he would have been uh, in terms of oh, like opening that... theme performed by Billy Corgan. Interesting. Well, we I mean, can't all gonna... be winners. No, I suppose not. It's very Chicago, though. It is. Uh, so, but yeah, like he's he's always terrific, and he sells that that you know before the gun battle, he's talking about his his fate of uh, his premonition that you know he's doomed. Uh, you know, when your number is up and then at the end, he tries to give us the film's thesis on Dillinger, which is that you don't let people go. You don't let people down. And that's beautiful. I think yeah. that is like that is a really compelling idea for like what animates Dillinger is this need to like be the guy for everybody in his life. But Depp's performance is so closed off yeah, that you don't get that sense that like, yes, he's loyal up to a point, but you don't get the sense that like what animates him is this devotion. No, that's the thing is that like, they're doing a lot of telling and they're never showing. And like, there are obviously people who trust him and follow him and care about him to some degree, but nothing in Depp's performance illustrates that. Like the other than like a vague sadness when people around him start dying or leaving or abandoning him or what have you, there just isn't any real connection there that il- that illustrates that like there's a reason why these people follow him into you know hails of gunfire and any manner of danger that he sees fit to bring them to, even when they're doing the bank robberies, which are I you know I think are intended to t- show you like. Look how good these guys are. Look how efficient they are. Look how bought into this gang and and these activities that they are. They're all kind of the same. Like, they just do that scene over and over again in a way that feels very much the same until the last one with Nelson where he just starts shooting everybody. Like, it feels like, no, they're just, yeah, okay, they're kind of good bank robbers. Like, it doesn't have that ruthless efficiency that, like, Heat Illustrated. It doesn't have that flavor of, like, these are, you know, like old school outlaws just doing old school outlaw shit the way Jesse James did in the early goings. And it doesn't make it seem like anything these guys are doing has any real appeal to them other than it gets them money. And I just don't think that's a compelling pitch for a story about bank robbers. Yeah. And uh, just to close out this gun battle, like I do love the shot at the end when they finally bring Nelson uh, to heal when they yeah. finally corner him. God, they I shoot do him love, so many times. Yeah. They turn him into like ground beef uh, as, as he goes, goes down swinging. But the thing I love is like, we get this one shot again, like a uh, Spinati and man, uh, like, like some things really land as he is finally like knocked down and lays there. So spread Eagle was Thompson smoking next to him. We see his last breath. And it's the like the, yes. the light catches it with the, the same way the smoke is coming off the gun. And it is sort of this like thematic, like, you know, uh, connection being drawn between like 
you know, the the violence with which he lives is also his his animating spirit. And, and also the last gasp of a kind of criminal type thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful shot. It's a it's a cool it's, moment. It's one of exactly three shots in this movie that I still remember, even in between the, the viewings I've had. Like, that is one of the only things about this movie that has stuck with me. Um, But. And this is part of the oddity of this. Uh, so. And I think it's after this that we get the uh, take the white gloves off, right? This is where yes. this is where Hoover's like it's time to like really lean into the full uh, fascisti, uh, like shit that that is clearly inspired him. Um, but as that manhunt intensifies and takes that turn, the film is now done with Bale. It's done with Purvis. It's given up on like, him entirely. And the other thing is. In its last act, Depp finds a different take on Dillinger. And I don't necessarily think it's ill-advised, but it does feel like it felt to me at the time a bit less so now. Like at a certain point, Johnny Depp starts turning into Johnny Depp performance. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I mean is like the bad kind, right? Where it's like, hey, look, I'm Johnny Depp. And part of it is when he goes incognito and is like sort of uh, cornered near Chicago. You know, he, he tries to rescue Billy. That fails. Um, his his gang is being run down by uh, Purvis's Purvis's unit. You know, torturing their way through. Uh, they they've sort of laid all sorts of traps for him. We get, um, you know, we see that his former Confederates are now being. Uh, turned against him by the FBI. You know, the people that we saw aiding him early in the film are now basically informants against him and are setting him up for the kill. And in all of this, Dillinger switches to a more festive, like tropical shirt and a cream colored, like pork pie hat or something. And gets a little like reedy mustache. Mm hmm. And starts to feel like a different character and in some ways starts to feel like, and this is the film is drawing this out that he begins to see himself as the mythic, like star figure that the media has made him out to be. But also it feels like, I don't know that, Depp is now, you know what? There's there's a thing Depp did in a lot of his movies. I especially associate it with um like his Tim Burton, uh collaborations. But like there's a lot of him like looking wide eyed and innocent and astonished at things in the film. Right? Like mm-hmm. this is the thing that uh, Burton identified early with him is that like there can be an innocence and vulnerability uh, with just the way he looks and the like. You can create a lot of moments by scoring beautifully him looking at things right and like experiencing feelings and it feels like that ta- that 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 depth performance sort of comes out of nowhere here and shows up in the last act yeah it feels it, I, I i'm with you it does feel like he's starting to get more showy but not in a way that like really benefits the character or the story at all and not i think to keep, like yeah, that's going back to the assassination of Jesse James, but Pitt does this where Pitt does it in that like the end of that film even is sort of Pitt like contemplating like literally his own reflection 
and yeah. like his legend. And Depp is doing it, but it doesn't work for some reason. Well, I mean, look, and part of the Jesse James thing is that his character doesn't really embrace the folk hero aspect. If anything, he just becomes more of a paranoid weirdo as time goes on. Oh, he's incredibly scary. He's, but he, that's the thing. He gets scarier, and it, like there is a dimension there that I feel like once that gear gets kicked in, like it's such a different approach that work, like that actually tells a story. And this isn't aiding the storytelling. This isn't emphasizing an aspect of the character that like maybe the audience didn't really fully understand at this point. It just feels like the screenplay called for a different gear and Depp didn't have one. So he just fell back on the kind of thing that he tends to do when he's just falling back on his usual charm. Yeah. And so we get the scene of him, uh, you know, he's, he's already a marked man and he goes into the Chicago Dillinger unit, the Chicago police's Dillinger unit, uh, you know, just dying of curiosity for what they make of him. And it is an effective moment where we see uh, all his gang members, including ones that we haven't like that. They went their separate ways and have uh, sort of split up. Everybody he's worked with is dead or in custody. Mostly they're dead. And he is sort of the last photo on the wall, still, still at large. And it is, you know, it like the, the concept of it kind of works where, Dillinger has not he's been so busy living this life that he hasn't really fully internalized how that life has been portrayed like the fact that he's become a national character Mm -hmm. and this part of the scene kind of works for me in that there is a kind of wondrousness to it like as he as he realizes like this is how large he looms. This is this is who he's uh you know been been made out to be. And that energy is carried into his final uh night where he watches Manhattan Melodrama. Mm-hmm. Uh a not forgotten, but I don't think it's a particularly like revered uh like well, it's a melodrama from yeah. the you know. They 30s. say it right in the title. Yeah. Uh but I do have a soft spot for anything with William Powell in it. Um but you know, it is in that film where, you know, that that is a film about, uh, you know, Clark Gable and William Powell being best friends. And William Powell becomes the governor of New York as the, you know, Mr. Respectability. And Clark Gable is his down and dirty gangster buddy who gets in hot water and, uh, you know, ends up being like, you know, given the chair at the end of the film. And, you know, the the conflict there is will William Powell uh, commute a sentence or not and the, you know the, as the scene we see is Clark Gable saying I don't want to I don't like I don't I don't want to be spared I don't want to live in prison you know I just want to I just want to go all at once and the fact that like in some ways it is in the process of watching the Hollywood gangster that Dillinger finds out who he is mm-hmm or at least who he wants to be. Uh, that concept kind of works for me. But again, everything in this final act feels a bit divorced from the closed off cold character that we've seen for so much of the film. 
Yeah, like it's it is a resonant moment and it is a thing that I think a better movie like if you were to hang your hat on that scene and that moment with that character, I think it would hit real hard. But a lot of these I would just say the last 30ish minutes of this movie has a real animatronic quality to it in that it feels like every actor, every character is just going through the motions of an expected result. You know, like we know how Dillinger met his end. We know the theater. We know the story, you know, the the him trying to pull the gun, not successfully doing it, getting gunned down in, in the process. But there's no energy to it. There is no emotional content to it when it all starts to play out. The theater thing feels like it drags on way longer than the actual point it's making deserves. And when you finally get to these last like close-up shots of Depp's face as they're getting ready to, you know, to 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 take him out, it's they're going for something that feels like I assume is supposed to have like almost dreamlike quality to it, but instead it's very rigid. Like it feels like yeah. everything is just so choreographed to the hilt. And none of it feels like humans behaving like humans do. It's just actors doing extremely rigid direction. Yeah, it's very weird. He backs off sort of the torture in chief uh, with just a with just a glare mm-hmm. uh, before he sees the other cops coming. Uh, but then you know they he is going for gun. It's not quite an execution, but it's an execution. Yeah, uh, you know it's like this guy's not this guy's not being brought in. And we get our, you know, we get a closing shot of um, how quickly he goes from, you know, in some ways he, we've seen him portrayed as a folk hero one minute, and now he's a ghoulish spectacle, uh, right? Right. And uh, this is a thing that, uh, you know, that the film does a couple times. Once when his prison plane is landing, and again here the film really becomes interested in the process of like documenting moments like this of how these moments play out under these harsh glare, like lurid lighting and the the old time old school flash bulbs and such. And just the press of crowds, uh, crowds coming to gawk at, uh, you know, the, this guy, uh, and, and it's Stephen Lang who sort of delivers the, the killing blow. And we see, uh, you know, Dillinger trying to speak as Lang, you know, plays his head next to his mouth. But when, uh, when, when Bales Purvis asks, what did he say? Lang says nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Couldn't hear it. Yeah. And in, in some ways, like this is the, you know, again, the film hasn't fully explored this, but this is kind of the real root of the, the breach between them. Right. That like, uh, you know, Stephen Lang's character feels more kinship uh, and like humanity toward, Dillinger than he does at Purvis at this point that like they are not partners in that way yeah uh and he is the one who bears the news to Billy and like gives the film this like little touch of humanity at the end where he is trying to bring some measure of comfort uh into the scene and try to do something for Dillinger uh the per as a person uh at the end it's a nice scene uh it's 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 carried off well but but it didn't earn it. It's disjointed, yeah. It doesn't earn it because again, I if if that is the angle they wanted to take with it, which is that the the Texas lawmen feel a greater kinship with these, yep. you know, these these rough and ready cr- criminals than the the stuff shirt fucking, you know, cops that they have to work for, 
they did not do the legwork to set this up and present it in a way that feels like it is actually the movie's thesis statement. Or why it is so resonant that uh, he would come bearing this news to Billy because we, yeah. we are not bought in sufficiently on Billy. Yeah, exactly. Um, like all these things, again, it, there are individual scenes or individual aspects, lines, things that people do in these movies or in this movie that feel like in a much better production would absolutely kill. Like this would be great drama in the in the vein of great Michael Mann work. And it is the failure of the film. I think that like those scenes feel like they are on islands unto themselves. Maybe you need to make it twice. No. No. If he could have gotten a heat, if he could have gotten a TV movie version of this and then his real version. Maybe, but I, I think the bigger problem here, and this is illustrative. I, I think we started to see this in, in Miami Vice, mm-hmm. though. I think Miami Vice, it, you know, problems aside, there is an energy to that film. There is a fire to it that yeah. I think lets you skim over the more harried and less put together parts of it. And I can understand how there would be a critical reappraisal of it, even if I'm not fully on board with it. This does not have any of that energy, none of that fire. And, you know, while Miami Vice was almost was absolutely Michael Mann covering himself, you know, previous songs that he had already written. He at least took an angle there that felt like, okay, I'm trying to modernize this. I'm trying to do something with this. That isn't just a straight up retelling of this incredibly successful franchise that I created. This just feels like he he wanted to try to find a way to make heat in a different era with real people. Like he was trying to take a real world story that he felt like had some analogs to the kind of crime story he has already told and then tried to jam it into the like that meat into the skeletal structure of something he already knew how to make. And. I think that is a huge failing of this film. I think this needed to be its own story. It needed to be something that did not echo better movies that he had already made. He needed to strive for something that was beyond what he had already done before. And none of this is that. Other than like, you know, his further delving into the world of digital photography, there is nothing meaningful or inventive or even really that thoughtful in this movie. Instead, it's just rehashing shit you've already seen him do in a worse way with actors that seem way less invested in it and taking a real world story and weirdly sucking the drama out of what feels like should have been a slam dunk kind of retelling. Yeah, I um. Like where I have come down with it is like I'm considerably warmer on the film. I think a lot of these uh, scenes end up working well for me. I like the the coldness of a lot of a lot of these scenes, but like I do, like I I do agree with a lot of the criticism. Like I guess for me, where I come down is like this, and I, it's just it's sort of a more charitable uh like appraisal than yours, but. In all these disjointed pieces, I see a lot of pieces of stuff I like. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of like themes that he's playing around with that uh, like I really connect with, and I think are like coming up to some important points. But I wish it had picked 
God, of the like half dozen interesting ideas in this film, I wish he'd picked two to be yeah. like the the main focus and hone in on those. And I think in some ways, maybe it's like the, you know, in some ways it's like the danger where he ran into with Ali, where he gets like. I thought about Ali a historical lot research. He's like, I want to capture an entire era and talk about everything that's happening, all the context and connect to all this. Like, it's a really and like you can see it's like a pitch. It's like an elevate. It's like the pitch meeting gets out of hand. Yeah. And that makes its way onto the film where it's like you can see how you would get like with Ali. You'd start by saying like, well, actually, he's the central figure. Like he's this hinge point. Everything touch it like everything in the 60s and 70s like touches Ali. He's like in the background or the foreground of everything important that's happening. And so we're going to we're going to like make a movie about that. But in the end, it starts to feel like a really high brow Forrest Gump in some ways, like like doing it that way. And like some of these things are not fully earned like there's the cia at the rumble in the jungle what are they up to doing bad cold war shit and i think here i do think he's on the right track for a lot of things like the fact that from the beginning like when the chips are down american like america's principles such as they are go out the window Right. Yeah. That like it's we've always been a nation of like violent torturers. You know, we we've always been a nation that, you know, when the going gets rough, uh, whatever our values, whatever our belief, you know, go out the window. But there is there is so much that he is trying to condense in this film that like. In a lot of ways, for me, this film feels like a lot of interesting vignettes and some great moments that I really like. And in some ways, like a really subversive take on his own genre. Uh, Like the fact that, you know, you think you're going to get heat and his take is kind of like, there are no super cops. There are no no super criminals Uh, there. There's just like violence and chaos. I dig that. But the film is spread so thin. Yeah. And I think this is like for me, you know, I, I was reading Ebert's review at the time uh, and, he, you know, his, his is very charitable. He likes this movie a lot. And his, his review sort of concludes on this thought of like it's a very good movie is his takeaway. But I'm trying to put my finger on why it isn't a great one. And I think for me, it is it is that I think it is also a a very good movie. And I think there's a lot of like very good stuff in it. But. Its flaws are glaring. And like the greatness that eludes it is because it is possible that there's like the seed of two or three great movies here. And because he didn't pick one, he didn't get any of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think I think I agree with that. And the thing is, a lot of the themes you're talking about are things that resonate with me, too, and things that I like about Michael Mann and his particular fixations. And I think that's why I'm so frustrated with this movie is that it feels like he is letting those ideas down with the execution here. And it's not just him. I mean, again, the performances are not particularly great across the board. And, you know, I think Spinotti has some ideas here, but I think the cinematography is is largely outside of, like I said, like three particular shots. I think a lot of it is pretty messy and not particularly distinctive. Um. But it's just like, I know he can do better with this kind of material. And I think that is what really grinds my gears about it, is that it feels like in trying to cover himself, 
like he's just doing a worse job at his own material. And I think that bums me out a lot. I think something you mentioned Spinotti there uh, also made me realize. So I think like there's some great photography here. I think all the night sequences are tremendous. I think like he's doing like genius work with the digital photography in places. But you mentioned like the shaky cam and the messiness of the editing. And I think and this is something I've, I feel is, is happening throughout man's career. At some point, it feels like he is really resistant to like the beautiful image, right? Mm-hmm. Like the perfectly composed, not to be all like one perfect shot about this, but like yeah. he starts almost like spitefully avoiding giving us those shots. Like a few sneak in here, right? Yeah. Like Nelson, uh, you know, dying on the ground. A few of the shots of the the crowds, uh, you know, gathered around the around the plane, but. By and large, like he is not, he's really resisting giving us those like beautiful frames and those beats to contemplate them. Like I think about it could, it, it could, maybe should, they like, could be a nothing shot. The opening of heat, right? The empty train station, the train pulling in and sort of the, the stark symmetry of the scene and the contrast between, you know, the, the lit up platform and the darkness of the, of, of the city. And like this stuff starts to disappear in his work. And it's like, it's disappearance is like almost total by this point. I think it continues in black hat. When we get to that, I, I think he's still in that. Like he, he really falls in love with this. Like, I want to make things that feel like fully cinema verite and like documentary and that it's coming at the expense of the other part of what was what made his visual rhythm great, which was that in in the midst of all that like dynamic action, you would have these moments where you were reminded that you're also seeing photography. Mm-hmm. And he's getting really stingy with that by public enemies. I don't and like I I'm it's not that I need to have like, you know, his incredibly manicured photography to enjoy one of his films. Like, I think that there is a way to do a more naturalistic and less cinema cinematography minded way of, of shooting a film like this. I just don't think they got there with it. I think that what they ended up with, the product they created looks cheap. Like it looks flimsy in a way that I don't think is their intention. I think they are going for something that feels very like on the ground in the mix with these people. And like you're there in that scene, feel like absorbing the lighting the way a person actually would in in that time with that technology and what have you. But I just don't think digital works for that here. It makes the periodness of the place and the time feel like reenactment and not like something that is natural and belongs there. I, you know, and I, 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 I think the resistance to giving you the beautiful shot has actually landed them in a place where all they're giving you is this very muddy, confused look that feels inauthentic. It just doesn't feel like a, it, it not, it not just doesn't feel like a movie. It just doesn't feel authentic. Yeah, I think so. I think for me, like, I think we disagree on this point, but like some of the smaller gun battles uh, in particular, I think, and just the the overall look, I think what works for me there is he is so consciously 
not doing the the sepia toned nineteen. Like he is so consciously not doing the like. This is what the past looked like. Sure, the way like films like The Natural are. Yeah, and I think what kind of works there is like these these little shootouts in these small American like downtowns and such. Uh, like I I think what kind of lands for me is that in some ways it is it it, it is sort of startling to see it rendered this way and have it made real in a in a weird way or like uh like tangible for me in a way a lot of in a way a lot of other period pieces are like self-consciously avoiding that they get very either like they get very gauzy about it or like in saving private ryan you know we're gonna do like the desaturated high contrast like impact uh aesthetics of the of the whole thing so like i think for me instead of it looking like you know, reenactment stuff in this film. I think for me, it ends up reading more as uh, like convincingly underwhelming in some ways is, yep, this is about, this is about what it would look like if somebody started shooting up crown point, Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, like that, that part of it kind of works, but I do think because it's just guys in identical clothes, like just sort of shooting blanks at each yeah. other. Uh, like the problem is there's no, dramatic pop to yeah. any of it uh which and is I'm not, it doesn't have to be dick tracy you know like i understand yeah. like it, it he's going for something that is different than like how a lot of hollywood gangster stuff tends to look it's just that i think what they went for doesn't work yeah uh well i think that will that will do it for public enemies uh you know it's this is i am so curious man like we got that Ferrari movie, uh, like bearing down on us. And I'm so curious, like whether the trajectory continues that sort of started with, uh, I guess with Miami vice. Uh, yeah. cause I do think like, cause it's not just a digital thing. Cause collateral in a weird way, like it all works. Yeah. Collateral's great. Maybe it's just that like the things that work in collateral, he's like, what if I do that? But more so and it starts getting out of hand. I don't know, but like, I'm so curious what, what the Ferrari film uh, is is going to be, but uh, we got a little ways before we get to that. Uh, actually, what we've got coming up next, you know, Michael Mann's listed on producer of a lot of things. We're not covering all of it, but a thing that he put a lot of his personal prestige into following Public Enemies was, uh, and again, speaking of like problematic leads, uh, mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman, and uh, you know what we now know about him and his his uh, past in Hollywood, but. Like, man put a lot of his uh, prestige into an HBO series called Luck. Yes. Uh, which, on paper, and I've never seen it. I haven't either. So, I am so, because the thing is, at the time, all I knew about it was, like, Michael Mann was making a horse racing and horse betting uh, TV show starring Dustin Hoffman. That doesn't sound like anything. I had totally missed that, like, the lead writer for it, that it's a David Milch uh, series. Yeah. But famously, David Milch, uh, it is Milch, right? Not Milk. Yeah, I believe it is Milch, yes. Yeah. Has talked about it as a really sort of bitter memory because he's a famously controlling creator uh, of, of, his, of his work. And unfortunately, we had two really, by all counts, two really controlling creators uh, trying to share custody of the series Luck. And Milch was kind of chased off that side. Yeah. And did was not able to sort of 
be there for the process of his scripts being turned into shows. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say the show's great. Like I've, I've, I've that sh- the show definitely has like its defenders. I'm so curious what we're going to find when we look at this thing, but it is also just interesting from the perspective of, you know, David Milch is, I guess probably most famous for Deadwood. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got Michael Mann, like two sort of renowned creators. It seems like this should be a, a really successful team up. And that's up not being that. And so part of what we're looking at, one, is like, what is what is luck? Uh, what are we what are we going to make of this thing? How are we going what to find luck? it? <laughs> the minute I said, I was like, God yeah. damn it. But also, I think the other part of it is going to be a study and how like two really distinctive uh, like creators work together or don't yeah to make the show i uh, i'm so i'm like a little bit excited for this not because i think luck it i'm going to find a hidden gem here that you know i had not previously seen because i think i'm actually not going to like it very much based on what i know about it but i am really curious about it because a one season series from michael mann and david milch that aired on hbo featuring the actors it did and also the sheer amount of wanton horse chaos that apparently, uh, you know, bubbled up on the set of that thing. Horses died during this show. I think Milch has said like that was so overstated, but maybe so he would, he would. But like, all I do know is horses died. Yeah. Horses died. And let me get, let me be absolutely clear on my stance on this. I'm anti horse murder. Um, but this kind of fiasco involving these kinds of creatives doesn't come around very often. And so I do kind of want like having the, you know, almost 10 years later viewpoint on it. I am actually I guess it is over 10 years now. I am actually really curious to see what is there and actually experience it instead of just sort of having my perception of, oh, that was a disaster. Yeah, I, uh, you know, he is working with so many favorites uh, like John Ortiz is here, but mm-hmm. like also he's getting to work with Dennis Farina again in like. Uh, you know, he, he was active for, uh, I think, a few years after this, but like uh, Dennis Farina, I think, passed not too long after uh, Luck. This is certainly one of his last like starring roles. And so there is also an element of like there are parts of like, let's put the ultimate band together. Yeah. Uh, and and make the show. So, yeah, I am really curious uh, what we are going to find as we get into Luck in about a month's time. Uh, until then, thanks for listening and subscribing to Waypoint Plus and putting up with our extremely specific bullshit. I'd like, I know at this point we are in the divisive corner of the man filmography. Even among the people on this podcast, there is division lines being drawn. We are like, and and we are hurtling toward Black Hat. Oh boy. Uh, we're going to have to little talk about like Tokyo Vice. Yes, we are. Uh, and then maybe... Maybe by that point, the Ferrari movie will have found a distributor. And then, I don't know, at some point, we probably got to read Heat 2, right? We got to read Heat 2. We got to read Heat 2. Uh, yeah, so stick stick around for all of that coming up uh, this year on Manhunting. Uh, until then, thanks for listening. Good night. Good night.